Welcome back to another episode of Out of the Blank Podcast. Eric has joined me back again because he is multifaceted in a lot of areas of research. So we've kind of covered, I think we covered almost every single topic. At one point, we'll have to swing back to the little submarine that exploded underwater when they were trying to look at the Titanic because I still have questions about that. A lot of questions. Um, but we came here to talk today to talk about Howard Hughes, mostly because I see that this billionaire has a lot more influence than necessarily what we might have talked about. But you've kind of opened me up to some areas that are interesting about his character. Um, so I wanted to learn more about Howard Hughes' background. First of all, where obviously, does your knowledge come from James Elroy, the stuff that you read about? Or Partly, about? but I mean, there are, probably, there are a number of quite uh, good biographies and novels about uh use uh luke davis a good australian writer has written the god of speed which is a very good uh, psycho psychobiographical novel analysis of use and there are things like uh empire and howard use the hidden story and then what's his name porter um he writes all these encyclopedic exposés about sexual proclivities in hollywood he's written a 950 page sexual biography of howard use called uh, Hell's Angels. And uh, again, so much of this stuff is not substantiated, but some of it's just like too good not to be true. And some of it sounds right, you know, like at one point, for example, that Hughes was threatening Humphrey Bogart with death or extreme physical harm unless Humphrey, unless Bogey handed over his contacts in the uh, gigolo underworld and became uh, Howard's uh, number one procurer of young boys apparently and because bogey went both ways at one point uh according to, to to porter the author i'm trying to remember the guy's first name it may come up later but anyway it's called kenneth porter. By, so, sorry kenneth porter um not not certain um it's kind of embarrassing he kind of caught me off guard i mean you can google it if you want to but it's definitely porter hell's angels massive sexual biography of uh, howard Hughes. so yeah there there's something uh going on everywhere with him uh, but yeah, so it's full of full of stories and anecdotes like oh, that. Oh, Paul Porter. Paul, are you sure it's Paul Porter? It says pa Paul Porter, founder. Pre I don't know. No, oh, this is an actual member of the Hell's Angels. Yeah, no, 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 no. It's it's another guy. Uh, uh, so enter Porter Howard Hughes Hell's Angels. Oh, Darwin Porter. That's it. I was going to say Darren Porter, but Howard I knew that... Hughes, Hell's Angel, America's notorious bisexual billionaire. Yeah, that's right. And uh, the reason why he kept on getting divorced, apparently, was that he suffered from an extremely acute case of premature ejaculation. Uh, when when they were when they were talking to his first wife, who was a major Hollywood actress in the 1920s. Uh, again, it wasn't Zula Pitts. He had this, he had this is a child show, Eric. What are you doing? Yeah, right. Okay. Well, yeah. Well, you know, children. There's no such thing as childhood anymore, right? So, like, forget it. <laughs> You're right. You're so the, right on the, that. The internet. Bro. The internet killed all that off forever. So, like, no one is innocent, right? So, of anything ever. Um, so, um, it was his first wife. It was another Hollywood actress. It was not Zuzu Pitts, although he he had Zuzu Pitts many many times. Um, they. But the divorce was always a kept a secret, what she filed for and why. And near the end of her life, she gave an interview, and I'm paraphrasing, but this is almost an exact quote. She said, oh, well, it was, you know, why we divorced? Well, it was no big deal. I mean, when you look at it, it was just a very small, dribbling little thing. Good God. So was he a, was, was he a sex symbol in Hollywood himself, or was he just a rich kind of like 
adventurist billionaire type character that was able to sway in some of these like popular actresses and things of that well sort. first of all you don't sway in popular actresses okay i mean like i said no one's going to anything anymore and we have to be very very careful but everybody knows that hollywood is a place of shall we say sexual transactionalism and i'll leave it at that so so the game is played multiple ways okay um but again i have to be careful about how i i frame this because things have changed so much the last couple of years i think it's still the same there's harvey weinstein still a big thing yeah but but again it's it, the politics surrounding it has changed a great deal like a lot of things that cannot be taken for granted can no longer be taken for granted and that's generally and that's definitely a good thing on the other hand things also continue in and if not in the same form in another form but yeah no i think think, think the best way to think about it is sexual transactionalism is the is you know is the raw core essence of Hollywood. Uh, but he was no Leonardo DiCaprio, that's for sure. And of course, uh, Scorsese, Scorsese, Scorsese did this bioepic of of Howard Hughes, right? And um, the Aviator, and it's really more about the Spruce Goose, uh, fia- well, not really the fiasco, the the Spruce Bruce uh, Spruce Bruce controversy. Um, about that giant wooden airplane he'd built to be able to actually transport an entire regiment of tanks <laughs> across the Pacific in a single flight to to back up the invasion of Japan that never happened. Um, but it goes on to sort of like everything, the drug use, the affairs with uh, Catherine Hepburn and a whole bunch of other people. Um, and the thing about Scorsese, it's, it's actually, I'm not going to say it's a bad movie, but it's not really a good one either. And the thing about Scorsese is he runs as a director, he runs hot and cold, and he kind of follows the old Howard Hawks rule, which was that you do one for the studio, and when then you, when you get your money back, you make one for yourself. And a movie, I mean, and that I think it's one of the ones he was doing for the studio it wasn't really Scorsese at its best, but it does a good job packaging in very shiny wrapping paper uh, everything you really need to know about Howard Hughes, especially during the the Hollywood period. Uh, but yeah, he was, and of course that's where, where Elroy got the phrase fuck pad from, uh, which appears in the title of my book, uh, which should be out the first quarter of this year. It had to get delayed because of, um, edit proofing processing problems. Um, or I mean, just a lot of, a lot, a lot of work something in the title you're not supposed to have a lot of, well, that, no, that, 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 no, that's the one thing that isn't problematic <laughs> that, no, that one down, that one down really well. Uh, no, it's just that the thing's a mass, it's things like going to come in at like 900 pages. So it's taking a lot of work in the proof editing process. So it's running, running behind schedule, but my understanding is supposed to be the first quarter of this year. It was supposed to be Halloween, but they had to push it back towards like Easter. Um, uh, God, what, gosh, what, what was I saying? Back to Howard Hughes. So I want to know, I want to know from his start, how did he get his start? From, yeah. Well, see, see, James Elroy's dad, Armand. Elroy, and there actually was a man with the name Armand Elroy. It's not made up. Sounds made uh, up. I mean, my yeah. name's Robbie Robertson, so I can't really talk. Yeah, well, trash. yeah. Oh, yeah. You're not no relation. I am. That was my uncle. Robbie Robertson was your uncle. Yeah. You you mean you you mean the the musician guy, the guitar player? Yeah. Uh, is there another one out there? I didn't know. Well, I don't know. I mean, there may be a couple Robbie Robinsons. Oh, say so you're his nephew. Well, that, okay. Well, you know, I've just I your estimation in my approval skills has gone up several thousand points. So that's 
I'm kidding. I'm not related. <laughs> I didn't think so. If it, oh, there he goes right straight down again. Yeah. When I, I got when think, I got I, to I 1500 think... episodes, I was gonna have him on to t- when I had him when I was gonna do the 1500 episodes. I was gonna have him on to be like, it would be cool to talk to Robbie Robertson. It's my 1500. Then he died. And I was yeah, like, the Storyville guy. Yeah. Well, what you can, what you can do is you can just channel him and, and see what comes out. Get, right, get some EVP recording equipment and see what when, happens. When people start breaking out candles and lighting stuff, I'm just get out. I can't do it. I can't handle the smells. But all right, how did Howard Hughes get a start? That's what I want to know. Howard Hughes got a start. Uh, well, well, first of all, he was born into wealth because his father uh, was a develop, um, pioneer in um, petroleum. He was a bit of a wildcatter, which also Howard continued with, but it was mainly into mining. And his father, in conjunction with a couple other people, some of whom accused ripped him ripped them off in full or in part developed what we call the Yules the use uh tool drill bit and it was for penetrating deeper sediments of soil when you're actually looking for petroleum and the thing about the use uh drill bit is that rather than having a single uh end on it it actually has three rotational ones so when the drill is spinning down, you actually have this three-way mechanism that's actually cutting much more sediment much more quickly. And that was considered a revolutionary development, and he patented it. And that formed the basis of the used tool company or corporation. And it was used tools, which was a pioneer and I, until very recently, I mean, it may still even be going, although I think in a different form was a was a was a cutting edge developer in mineral and mining technologies and uh the patent of that was worth in current terms billions literally hundreds and tens of millions at the time in the 1920s and 30s and that was the only that was really the source of howard's wealth because that was the only part of his finance of his empire that was actually ever really profitable everything else more or less lost money uh, at least over time. And the, he kept the entire enterprise flowing from the profits of the use um, uh, uh, tool company. And the reason why that was always a success, even though everything else was kind of a flop by the end of the day, was that that was the one part, the one corporation he controlled that he took no part in administering. He had no part of the management, which meant that the board was able to be successful. <laughs> And not insane in what in what they were doing. Yeah, so that was really the big start. And then a uh, number of complicated marriages and a lot of problems with his parents and his relations. And basically looking for something to do, uh, striking out on his own, you know, the whole my, med- my medic rivalry with the father type of thing. And finally, he decided to go into movies. And he simply saw the, the film industry as a good way of investing surplus cash and becoming his own thing, right? And he went in like with practically like $10, $50 million in cash, which was a fortune. He was able to buy any studio he wanted, able to buy any theater chain that he wanted. And he decided to make a movie about aviation and the First World War, which was called Hell's Angels. And I've got it. I've seen it. It's actually, it's actually definitely worth watching. I mean, it, it's, it's very bizarre and incredible in a number of ways, but it is definitely worth viewing. And uh, the story about Hell's Angels, and it's it's typical of everything that happened to use uh, throughout his entire life. It's, it's kind of a pattern that set in. And then all the other events in his life are kind of like synchronous repetitions of the, the first and original pattern. Uh, is that he finished it 
in late 1926, and it was just a couple months before Sound came out with the jazz singer throwing Al Jolson, which is also a really good film to watch. And so Howard had a problem, and everyone said, well, you know, it's not such a big deal, Howard. You just go ahead and do it. And, you know, sound technology is pretty new, and, but, but there's the, the silent movies at this time. It's only 1927, right? 1927, 1928. They're still rocking, you know, they're still bringing them in. We'll transition to sound eventually, but don't worry about it. And, uh, you know, and see how we, and, you know, better luck next time. He said, no, no, I'm reshooting the whole thing. He reshot the whole thing with sound. So are we saying mad genius or what What are we saying? Uh, well, I mean, depend, it's mad genius or not. I mean, the, the movie is an amazing technical accomplishment. And he personally directed all the aerial combat scenes. They kept on flying over the San Fernando Valley <laughs> for hundreds and hundreds of hours, getting all the dogfights right. Uh, and actually, several people were actually killed uh, during during the filming, uh, basically botched landings. Or, or I think there was one mid-air collision and at least one person was killed in that. Uh, so there were a couple of fatalities linked to the picture, but it was more his grandiosity. I mean, he said he the film would have been a success even if it was released as a silent film. I mean, it wouldn't be today, probably. Uh, I mean, what was that French film about 10 years ago that came out? It was totally in silence, a silent film that did really, really well. Anyway, you can do it once in once in 10 years. You can make a lot of money off a silent film or a documentary or something. Right. But uh, in those days, still being silent in 1927 wasn't a big deal, but it had to be the cutting edge thing, right? So no matter how much money he burned, it was worth it because he had the cutting edge thing. Uh, and it was that kind of grandiosity and narcissism and megalomania, uh, coupled with a kind of a genius, that, uh, just, that, that just propels the used story. And one of the things that makes it such an American story is the excessiveness of it. I mean, you know, Americans, American society is puritanical on the surface and hedonistic and neo-pagan underneath, right? And uses a great example of how you transition between the two things. And once he was in a position with enough money, enough power, he just burned everything up or down, depending how you look at it. Um, and, you know, gargantuan appetites, unlimited and unbridled passions, uh, basically had sex with just about everything that moved and took about every single drug conceivable. I mean, he he did out, he outdid Jack Nicholson by uh, light years. Damn, I was going to say that too. I was going to literally say Jack Nicholson. No, 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 no. No, Jack was emulating Howard then. Well, I'll say Jack Nicholson has probably done every drug and done every body. Uh, probably has, but uh, Howard got there first and probably maybe a little bit classier, maybe not as much fun, but maybe with a bit more class. Don't know. Don't really want to go there. Well, how much of Howard Hughes's myth? Like, what have you been able to find that you just don't believe about Howard Hughes? Whether it's a crazy, insane story. I've heard that he drank like was it oxycodone or something, and he never cut his fingernails. Uh, near the end, I mean, I mean, some of that stuff. It, it's a gradual deterioration, and what you tend to do when you talk about Howard Hughes is you tend to compress him into things. What? I, I, okay, I'll. I see where you're getting at. I thought one thing that was a myth that apparently is not was that at one point he was going to build an airplane with a nuclear reactor in the in the tail section to power it so it could fly in the air perpetually. And apparently he actually did have plans for such an airplane and they weren't that far from developing it. So kind of like uh, Tesla with his death ray that he had. Yeah, yes. And um, if you, the Netflix series Agent Elvis 
that's got a Howard oh, yeah. Hughes episode, Howard Hughes episode in it, and they actually he, they're actually on board the nuclear reactor airplane. Isn't that a cartoon? Yeah, it's animated. Okay, Matthew McConaughey. You yeah. said like the, the 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 show, like it was an actual like thing. I was like, it's an animated well, it an like, family show. guy. It's just thing. an animated. I mean, look, you know, if you grow up like me, watching anime and manga and all that, and reading manga and all that stuff, the animated stuff is as real and probably more often more real than the so-called non-animation stuff, which is you like the organic fleshy stuff. Yeah. You, oh no, yeah. it's way better. Yeah. So yeah. So that I thought that was a myth. Something about him, though. So you're asking me. I'm trying to decipher who this person is. I'm trying to understand if there's more that's been media manipulated to create this figure that has kind of made that to me, it seems like a real life Hugh Hefner, but in a sense of like involved in way more like a mix of Elvis and Hugh Hefner. But I want to know how much of it was real and how much of it was fake media. You know, I feel like especially if you own Hollywood, you can really do whatever you want to manipulate your own image. Um, to make you come out however you want in the cultural memory. Yeah, in the Porter book, you have to read it with a grain of salt because he throws in every single item of gossip conceivable, which is why it comes to like almost a thousand pages. I mean, it's a great read for a thousand pages because <laughs> you're reading stuff you couldn't possibly believe. Like, you know, just how much of a cross-dresser uh, Spencer Tracy actually was um, and stuff like that. So you're never able to look at guys like Cagney or Bogey or Tracy or any of those guys ever, ever again. And no one seems to be straight. And like, you know, the most well-endowed, the three most well-endowed actors in Hollywood in the 30s and 40s was appropriately enough. The first one, Johnny Weissmuller, uh, the, the megastar Tarzan, um, John Ireland who apparently was humongous and um oh the third guy um i will remember his name something tuck anyway he did a lot of westerns he played guy, guy in a lot of westerns and they would have like competitions and they'd have like you know everyone in hollywood would get together at somebody's mansion in the dark and weissmuller or john would come out and they'd you know have the spotlight and they have the orchestra playing like sultry caribbean music Gosh. And then they then they'd sort of like reveal themselves and everyone go ooh ah, and you know you understand like the whole thing about Tarzan and Jane in the jungle how it actually works you know that sort of thing. So yeah, so there's tons and tons and tons of that in the Porter book. So you're reading it and it's like and I was I you know I wasn't I was only taking legal substances while I was reading it, and I I said to myself I I said, I said okay what point does reality switch off and phantasmagoria begin? And you realize that there really is no hard line division between the two things. So the, but the thing about Howard is what made him tick, what makes him such a big deal, what makes him such an archetype? I would say that he has, he's the epitome. And that's one thing I'm, I make a great deal of in my, my Elroy book talking about him is that he's sort of the epitome of uh, the dynamics of parapolitics which is that there's nothing really that institutionalized about it. Um, it's very decentered. It's very diffuse. It's, it's very affective. Um, but it's really is about links. It's about networks. It's about people knowing each other who know others, who know others, who all want to sort of do the same thing, which is either illegal, legal, or paralegal, quasi-legal. And that's how people simply facilitate each other. It's about being middlemen. It's about mediating between others and among others. 
Um, and that's what Howard does. I mean, he's, he's sort of like just the, the guy to go to. He's, he's the go-to guy if you're doing a lot of stuff in Hollywood. And then, of course, during the Second World War, he becomes a war asset because of the Hughes Company and Hughes Aircraft, which developed some of the very earliest helicopters, some of which were actually employed in combat. Um, and and uh, designs for a number of very advanced fighters, some of which went in production, some of which never did. Uh, and then that establishes through the Pentagon his connection to both the Defense Department more generally, the defense industry more generally, and then, of course, the CIA and national security and intelligence agencies. How deep do you believe that he actually was? Like we talk about government contracting on things. He was involved in a little bit more, it seems like, than just building a couple airplanes or building an idea for an airplane. I think he tried to rescue a submarine at some point, try to get. Oh, yeah, that was in the 1970s. Uh, That was an attempt to raise a Soviet submarine that sank, I think, uh, in the Southern Pacific, off the Philippines, I think, um, but in one of the major trenches of uh the south the normal um, people don't do that they just they just don't well no no they don't normally do it but the more important thing about the, the Gomer expedition is that it really did seem to be a cover story because the cover story they had is that they got hold of it with the winches they were bringing it up with the cables and the cables cut and they lost it in fact we think that they actually retrieved it and they claimed after the fact that it was a failure to prevent the russians from knowing that they actually retrieved uh the the information and data and equipment that they wanted uh, so, yeah, no, that was a huge deal, but it was probably successful, not unsuccessful. So how deep do you think that his government connections go? Uh, I think fairly deep. And the other thing, too, is like a lot of other um, New York or East Coast billionaires, he gave money to everybody. So, you know, to the Kennedys and to Nixon. So he was playing both ends against the middle so that when you're dealing with that level of financial magnitude, you're able to spread your cash around so that you'll always win in the end somehow because nobody is not working for you or more to the point. It's not so much working. You see, when you talk about conspiracy theory and secret governments, we always tend to imagine it as like a bureaucracy of a kind, like a command and control system. And it's not that way. It doesn't function that way at all. It functions through influence. I mean, a lot of this stuff is, is just criminal stuff, criminogenic stuff, right? Like uh, like like bribery and graft and corruption and blackmail and extortion and all this stuff that that happens normally between people. Only this time, it's actually governments or people representing governmental agencies who are doing it. Right. That's the that's the key difference. And and Howard was simply able to have almost virtually every single major politician in the United States federal government from the 30s onwards, owing him something in his debt. Hoover did through information, Hughes did it through uh, finances, but then there's a link between Hoover and Hughes that, of course, Elroy makes a great deal of, I mean, more than there actually was, because among the other things that Hughes had was he owned the the magazine Confidential, and Confidential was the real gossip sex expose magazine of Hollywood in the 1940s and 50s, 30s, 40s, and early 50s, right? He owned that. And there was so much dirt. And again, you're asking me how much of it's true, how much false. Don't know. What matters is it gets into print. And as soon as it becomes into print, the story, whether it possesses any objective truth or not, acquires a subjective truth value, which is that this is what everyone's going to be thinking about. The next time they look at Ava Gardner, you're going to think about her having sex with Sammy Davis Jr., right? Whether it's true or not, probably isn't, but that was the story. 
kind of made sense. And it was a great copy because every single housewife in America was thinking about, well, you know, if Ava Gardner could get Sammy Davis Jr., I might be able to do as well because, you know, he just kind of goes that way, right? So it doesn't really matter what's true or false. And and apparently there are rumors, you're talking about myths and stuff, right? There are rumors that use Fed Howard, uh, use Fed Hoover a lot of stuff through the back channels of Confidential Magazine and some of the stuff they didn't publish. And that, a lot of that stuff, material, if the story is true, went into the FBI files, the secret files, the X-Files that Hoover had. Now, I've seen I've seen the files on um, Hughes. There's a good portion if you're able to go to like this site called Document Cloud. You can search up key terms and they'll find like – they have every government document you could possibly think of, at least that I've seen. They use it for the JFK stuff. But I saw an art, uh, document that was a letter from Hoover and he was talking about Howard Hughes and he mentioned that Howard Hughes has a very significant influence into – lots of cultural sectors. And he was mentioning that this is someone that we need to keep tabs on. This is someone that needs to be watched. I was thinking at the time it was because of that around, probably around this period, you're talking about the Hollywood blacklist and just probably influence into Hollywood. So I would figure that if he's starting to be involved in the Hollywood business, then you would just try and keep tabs on him. But I think he was more concerned about what else was he intertwined with, whether it was mafia connections, whether it was government connections. Well, I mean, none of this stuff is art mutually exclusive. You can be concerned about him because of the McCarthy issue and his ideological conformity, but you can also be uh, interested in him as as an intelligence asset that you want to cultivate, you want to enter into a, a symbiotic partnership with. And of course, one of the guys that who Hughes had working for, more confidential magazine, had working for them, so therefore the guy was really working for Hughes. It's a guy who shows up a lot. He is like one of James Elroy's greatest heroes, real life heroes. Um, and he appears in a couple of short stories, and he appears as a uh, camouflage character as Pete Bondurant or Bondurant in um, USA, uh, the USA Underworld trilogy. He's a guy called Freddie Otash, or Fred Otash. And Fred Otash uh, was six foot two, 240 pounds. He was about my size. Uh, Lebanese, uh, heavy chain smoker, heavy womanizer. He had three girlfriends. Uh, all at the same time, and they were all major Hollywood starlets, one of whom I think was Anita Ekberg. So he was sharing Anita Ekberg with, I think, um, I don't know, maybe, I don't really want to <laughs> libel anybody alive or dead, but he was doing a number of Hollywood personalities simultaneously. And he was a, psycho a psychopathic, violent uh, ex-cop. Uh, used to work for the LAPD, and he was on the special, you know, remember the Zoot Suit riots? He was part of the anti-Zoot Suit squad. And he specialized in basically torturing and beating uh, severely Hispanic Latino prisoners because uh, he was—he's kind of—he's on the Latino beat of the LAPD, and he was so corrupt and so violent. And he was also blackmailing his captain that they finally kicked him off the force, which takes a lot to get kicked out of the LAPD for excessive behavior. And he went into—it became a private investigator, and uh, sort of became the point man for. Um, confidential magazines, clandestine activities in Hollywood, the Hollywood scene. And he, and he helped engineer and develop a lot of these little uh, electronic recording doodads, like, you know, the pen with a microphone in it, or the cigarette box that's got a little tape recorder in it, <laughs> that sort of stuff. Well, he and, and he and the, he, Atash's crew and the confidential, um, shall we say, business enterprise uh, did a lot of the pioneering work in that kind of like domestic, do, do, domestic do-it-yourself espionage 
you know, you you know, the the the, the do espionage at home the kit. DIY kit. Yeah, you buy it for your kid and then they go wind recording up what their parents are doing in the bedroom, you know. So all this evolved from a little Annie decoder pin. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Yeah. So and of course if Otash is grabbing all this stuff, then Hoover will want to know it, right? And the best way of getting it, the most cost-efficient way and the safest way of getting it is not to strong, strong arm use. You uh, do the soft tap on the shoulder. You, you want to team up and we can do favors for each other. And of course, Hoover would say, uh, pardon me, of course, Hughes would say yes. What do you think, like when it comes to Nixon, was he aware that Howard Hughes had donated um, his money through his brother's camp or his brother's restaurant? Uh, almost certainly. Almost that's certainly. again. That's one of the, that's one of the theories about the Watergate break-in that you know no one has really been able to explain very well, including the burglars themselves, what what they were doing there in that room on that night. And one of the theories that's been put forward is that they were there because they thought that the publisher of the Las Vegas Sun newspaper, called How Greenspan, had actually gotten the papers about uh, the Hughes's loan to Don Nixon. And he was either in Greenspan's office in Las Vegas or was in the Democratic uh, uh, Party headquarters in the Watergate uh, Hotel. And that's what they were looking for. Do you think that Hughes ever got criticism from anybody about – I mean throughout his career, have you been able to find anything about criticisms of Hughes, whether it's just his eccentricness or the way he was a billionaire? Has he just been remembered as this figure of eccentric value? Um. I mean, it, it's really sort of his, his, his value as a cultural signifier. That's, uh, if I can put it that way, that's with us today. At the time, though, I think one thing he attracted a great deal of criticism for was his involvement in Nevada politics because uh, his buyout of Las Vegas, he bought up a number of the, the major hotels in the Strip, and especially, uh, remember, you know, Glitter Gulch? Uh, the older part of the, the strip, like things like the Frontier or the Golden Nugget, um, the Silver Slipper. The I, I think he owned I the Mint at one point. I think he owned the Mint, which unfortunately he's gone. Some of those places, I mean, you know, letters corrupt as hell, but I mean, they're really beautiful monuments to Art Deco and and the whole Las Vegas aesthetic, which is pretty. I mean, it's dumb, but it's seductive at the same time. Um, so he was a major player in Las Vegas for a number of years, and he became very involved in Nevada politics. And of course, one of the, of course he bought both the state senators, including Paul Laxalt, was on his payroll forever. Um, but he had a lot of he actually, even though he was very closely tied to the Pentagon, he actually was an early uh, environmental activist, and that he really spearheaded the movement of the the anti nuke movement in the United States in the American Western Western states anyway. Uh, because he wanted to stop um, atmospheric testing of nuclear weapons, much of which was taking place in, in Nevada. That's how John Wayne and all the pe- everyone who worked on this on this set, uh, the one very famous Western, which again, name eludes me, I will think of it soon, they all contracted cancer uh, 10, 20 years later. And they all think they got it because they were actually downwind from a nuclear <laughs> test blast that took place about while they were actually out filming. But the reason, of course, that Howard wanted the nuclear test to stop was that he was living in Las Vegas at the time. 
and he had become mega paranoid about infections and disease and transmission of toxic substances. So he was really prepared to kind of like undermine U.S. national security just to prevent himself from being exposed to a major health hazard. Why, why um, did why did the germaphobe I I or kind of addiction whatever he had about the disorder that he had about germs? What because I mean if he's like known as like a sex sex whatever I don't know what you would call him but promiscuous would why would he be so afraid of germs then i'm like that's kind of like one of the biggest well things. first of all with the promiscuousness we we don't know how far it went i mean when you read some of this stuff and not not just the porter book but other things as well you know, you know more or less respectable publications he's with the women and sometimes the, the boys and the men um apparently he had a serious oh no no wait no sorry take it back Porter suggests that Frank Sinatra had a lifelong love affair with Burt Lancaster. And Milton Burrow was sometimes part of it, maybe like a triangle or something. What okay. books are you so, reading there? Eric? I, another book by Porter, which is the Frank Sinatra book. Okay. Because, so like you said, okay, what I said to myself, I set myself a challenge. I said, okay, I've got like 900 pages of Bacchanalia, right? Hollywood Bacchanalia. Who's the one guy in Hollywood I could think of who might be able to compete with Hughes on this front? And I thought about Jack Nicholson, and I said, no, that's that's too boring and predictable. And I said, I knew it, Frank Sinatra. Right? And guess what? Porter's got a 600-page book on Frank Sinatra. But Burt Lancaster and him, they were close, man. They, they were tight. And Milton Burrow was part of it. But I'm off target because I was talking about Howard Hughes, not Frank Sinatra. But I'm. Oh yes. Oh yes. Howard Hughes had an affair with Cary Grant, whom apparently he was very, very. Cary Grant apparently was the great male love of his life, and uh, it is, I think, a fact because I have come across this in several other places that when Howard, when Cary Grant died, someone delivered a, a bouquet beautiful, top-notch red roses, uh, to the uh, funeral. And all it had written on it was to carry from Howard. It makes it more believable. Yeah. Oh, or wait a second. I have, correct myself. You may have to edit this out. I may have it backwards. It was actually used died first and Cary Grant was still alive and to use his funeral. Anyway, some Grant send use flowers. I think I got it backwards. My, my bad. Okay. But certainly, okay. But certainly, they were very, very close. Yeah. So how did I get on this? I don't know. I'm trying to get to the point of how we get to Howard Hughes, and we get to this. Like I said, we talking about how bad. Um, if anybody talked bad about Howard Hughes, or if he had any scandals at the time. Oh yeah, right, sure, right. Uh, right yeah, Nevada. It's because of his involvement with buying Las Vegas. Of course, you see. Well, let's face it. I mean, seventy-five percent of Nevada is Las Vegas, right? And Reno's five percent. There's twenty percent. There's everything else. Uh, and you, and if you're and if you're the dominant power in, if you're the hegemon of Las Vegas, you're going to have a huge controlling influence on the state. And a lot of people did not like the way that he became involved in uh, local politics. And he wanted to rezone Las Vegas. He wanted to build all these uh, casino hotels, including the International, which was also a hideous flop by the end. Thank God they tore it down. Because uh, it really was was decrepit and nasty, um, and zoning law changes, and of course, and who, here's the other thing too: his greatest critics, believe it or not, were the mafia, B 
because in order to acquire the casinos, or not so much the hotels, but the casinos, because the mafia had, had the skim running in a lot of the biggest casinos, because it was sort of the um, well, the old school mafia ones, right? Like the yeah, Cohen but they, we're, and all. we're talking about the 1950s and 60s. Okay, yeah. so no, no, Las Vegas State has been pretty much demafiaized. It's more like financial crime rather than the old school stuff, right? Uh, like the stuff like in um, Casino, which, which is a good, good Scorsese film about the mafia in Las Vegas. Um, and so he had to do a deal with the mafia to acquire control over the casinos, both above board and below board. And his contact man was Robert Mayhew, who was working for the work at times for both the FBI and the CIA. And he was also his contact with the Mormons, the Mormon church in uh, Salt Lake City. So Mayhu, Mahu, who knew a lot of the mafia guys and has been fingered as a suspect in a possible mafia organized hit of JFK in Dallas in November 22nd, 1963, uh, was Howard's go-between, his mediator between uh, Howard and the mafia. And the mafia couldn't believe that they were charging used top dollar and they were still skimming him anyway. Uh, and they were chuckling about this to themselves forever is how they were ripping off the so-called financial genius. And they were, they were skimming him and they did charge him too much uh, for the casinos. But I think at the end of the day, the joke's really on them because when we look at the big picture, said, why did it use buying into Las Vegas? It was such a, a gusto, like, you know, this, this Bacchanalian, Satyricanian uh, sort of overdrive, Dionysian exuberance and excess. It was because it was a tax dodge. He was able <laughs> because the tax rates in Las Vegas were so low. And through some very, very creative accounting, which is why it took his estate forever to actually get sorted out. And I still believe there are still, to this day, there are outstanding issues on his estate, who gets what and how much and, and why, um, that he was able to save tens and tens of millions of dollars. So although he was definitely paying an overhead, in the long range, in long term, it really was profitable for the entirety of the use corporation uh, to engage in the Las Vegas deal. Yeah, but, but the main the, the the main local resistance to him was the fact that he was treating Las Vegas as his fief, and he was simply wanting to make too many changes. He also was promising forever to build this model community. It's kind of like you know his version of Epcot, and it would have been for uh, all the workers in the avi space and aviation industry, space and aeronautics industry that was supposed to have this huge boom in Nevada. You know, it's like Area 51 stuff, right? But only above board. And, and it never really materialized. And they argued over it for years, literally. And again, it was the same thing. It was, it was a huge tax dodge. He bought up the land and was therefore able to write off an enormous amount of federal tax on the grounds that he was actually developing a project that was of a significant economic value um, for the state of Nevada. How did he get a hold so a of lot, some of these I'm sorry, So a lot of it really seems to be finan financial man and tax manipulation and evasion. How, how did he get a hold of the casinos from the older gangsters, though? Uh, that was Mayhew stuff, and a lot of that's been done under board, and we'll never know very much about it, but he had to pay out a fair amount of cash to make it. Well, it wasn't, wasn't so much acquiring them. He could acquire the hotel legally, right? You buy the hotel, and the casino comes with it normally, unless there's a, a kind of a contractual or, or property arrangement. Uh, the problem is getting the mafia to leave it alone, right? And that's really where the payoffs came. It was it was basically it was a friendly extortion racket. I know you guys own it. I I mean run it. I want to own it. I'll give you more 
than will ever appear on paper in exchange for you guys basically not screwing around with me too much. And that basically seemed to be the way that it worked, although they kept on screwing around with him. But then again, I still think at the end of the day, he made much more. Why do you, and why that, do you think, that, that was simply that was simply a business cost. Why do you think Hughes, towards the end of his life, became more of a recluse and kind of nobody could snap a photo of him? He just seemed like he vanished out of the whole thing. Well, there's a, psycho, a psychoanalytical explanation, and if you read anything by Hughes, like the Empire book, for example, which is very, very good and a bit more reliable than the Porter book, but the Porter book covers this as well. Um, and God of Speed covers it as the, the Australian novel by Luke Davis uh, does it very well. Um, there are two ways to read it. I mean, read it that he was suffering from some sort of psychological difficulties that may have involved the sexual abuse or child abuse when he was very young. Um, there are different types of mental pathologies that do get centered upon contamination. Purity of body, purity of blood, purity of urine, purity of as they put in Dr. Strangelove, vital bodily fluids and essences. Um, but the other thing, of course, is that he actually had, had died. Uh, there is a theory that his existence was being simulated. And the cover story was that he'd just become a recluse because he he more or less rented the top two floors of the Desert Inn Hotel, which is really one of the nicest old-fashioned style uh, Las Vegas hotels, the Desert Inn. And he had the two top floors and he blocked out all the windows. They put mask. They put um, industrial tape over all of them, and uh, he just lived in the darkness the whole time. That's so and at some weird. Point, and at some point during this period, which had been the late '60s into early '70s, he died. And the Mormons didn't want to shut down the operation because it was a sugar daddy for too many people, including the the Church of Latter Day Saints in in Salt Lake City. So they said that he flew down. To I think it was, I think it was the Bahamas is where he then moved for a while, where he was also in a total reclusive state, and he would only talk to people over the telephone. And then what happened was, was that there was that famous fake biography of Howard Hughes, uh, and then he sort of went on television to denounce the fake biography, but he never appeared on TV. They just they turned on the TV camera and was pointing at this like this microphone with um with a two-way speaker system. And it was Howard Hughes' voice coming out, giving all the reasons why the biography was not to be trusted, right? The, the, David, the, the, the I think it was the Irving biography, right? So he blew all that down, but he never actually appeared. Several people claimed to have gone in and interviewed him, like including, I think, the governor of at least one state. I don't know if it was Nevada or another one, but they saw him, but they saw someone like him acting and speaking like him. What would but be it, the benefit of keeping it, 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 his it, image it, it, It's actually very, very difficult to actually verify his physical existence much after 1970. What would be the benefit of keeping his image alive? Uh, image alive is that if, if he's simply a recluse, then you've got the perfect explanation as to why he, you never see him. I meant no, but what, what would be the purpose of trying to use his image? I, I'm not quite sure I understand. You, well, if you're you, saying that there's a theory that he died, what would be the purpose of trying to keep him alive if you do believe that he was dead? Uh, because they did not want – because the will were multiple wills. He changed them every 72 hours for years. There was too much chaos as to who would actually receive a portion. But since the Mormons and Mahu's outfit had operational control over him, psychological and physical, and especially absolute if he was dead, then there was absolutely every reason in the world to keep things going because they were making a huge bundle off 
they may not really be getting an inheritance, but they they were scamming the company hideously through overbilling and uh, all kinds of like fake expenses and all kinds of like benefits like yachts, planes, cars, buying everything on on Howard's um, check. You believe there's more about Howard Hughes than we know? Well, there's always something more to everyone whom we know. That's true. But I mean, do you think that there's something a little bit deeper? I mean, it is a little bit strange. I mean, if you work for the government, you contract for the government, making military crafts or whatever you're doing, I'd have to think that you have a pre-existing relationship or you're developing a relationship where it goes a little bit farther. I mean, he owning fronts for where the government, CIA, intelligence agency can do tactics. I'm trying to get to the point of when finding out that the theater that Oswald was arrested at was owned by Howard Hughes. And that can be a coincidence. I believe that 100%. But also, like, even look at Spawn Ranch, where Manson eventually ended up. That was Howard Hughes was there as well, too. So he had a movie production thing that went on there as well, too. And that, that could just be a famous movie location set. I'll agree yeah. with that as well, too. But well, it was. Yeah. When you see his name pop up in a couple various, very, yeah, yeah, kind of strange occurrences, like, oh, even Elvis's name didn't pop up that fucking much. Well, I mean, like the Spawn Ranch, for example, I mean, or the, or, or, the, or the Texas movie theater, I mean, Dallas, I mean, uh, I I personally don't really make, put a lot in that because he owned a lot of properties in the movie industry in Hollywood, in Southern California, out into the valley and the Imperial Desert, in, you know, the Imperial Valley, uh, so that if the Manson family's hiding out in an old movie set, there'd be a very good chance that it would be owned in part or in whole by Howard Hughes, or was owned at some point. Uh, just like uh, the theater in the movie theater in Dallas was a, a prominent movie theater. And if, How if Oswald went in there to meet somebody, which has never really been proven, but if he did, that would have been a logical place to meet. I, I can't really see by itself that much substantial in it. And it's like we were talking about before. When you talk about anything parapolitical or anything involved with conspiracy theory, that's, you know, worth something as opposed to all the junk that's produced you have to come up with a face the problem of what we call um uh hearsay or 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 indirect evidence um you can't uh, and the problem is with with evidence and especially hearsay or circumstantial evidence even better uh, hearsay is part of it, but circumstantial evidence is really what the core issue is, is that when you start accumulating lots and lots and lots of circumstantial events, the killer knew the victim. The killer lived 100 meters, yards from the victim. The killer and the victim took the same bus to work every single day. Um, the killer would go on a walk and the killer would always, a part of his walk every evening without fail at 8 p.m. would go by the victim's house. Okay, so the guys have been accused of murdering the victim. He does all these things. And all of these things I've told you are circumstantial. It's not enough to convict. But when you get 20 or 30 of them, and you don't really have an outstanding alternative um, candidate for the crime, it starts becoming persuasive. And it starts becoming persuasive because it's the it's the problem of counter explanation or counterfactual explanation. In other words, how 
many things do you have to explain away or provide an alternative explanation for to sort of demystify or take out of the fact any kind of potential evidence for a conspiratorial or criminal action? And if you've got too many things that you have to deconstruct, I'm using that in the absolute most base sense of the word deconstruct. If there are too many things you have to deconstruct, then at some point you're going to start losing because it starts becoming increasingly, it starts becoming highly improbable that, <laughs> that all of these things can be dealt with. And if all of these things cannot be dealt with, then you may have enough to arrive at at least a reasonable conclusion on the balance of probabilities, if not necessarily beyond a reasonable doubt, that there is something worth looking at here. And that's and, and so much of conspiracy theory and parapolitical writing and analysis deals with what we call circumstantial evidence, because most of what goes on in the parapolitical universe, or phenomena that we can classify as criminogenic and or parapolitical, are not written. Much of what we would call parapolitical and or criminogenic phenomena are things that don't leave traces. Uh, and therefore, if you're going to reconstruct a parapolitical or criminogenic sequence of events, very often what you have to do, because you have nothing else to work with, is evidence that meet the definition of either hearsay and or circumstantial. And the trick, therefore, is to accumulate as much as you can that's, that's reliable, that's verifiable. Like Howard owned these properties, Howard invested in these businesses. Howard had all these girlfriends who were the girlfriends of guys in the mafia who all knew each other. And you do this 20, 30, 40 times, and then you might have something that's actually persuasive. But then Howard Hughes owned a bunch of movie theaters and had a big influence in Hollywood, but also worked for the government at a point. We know that the FBI had certain tactics where they'd sit in theaters. It's how they got John Dillinger. Um, CIA had maybe. tactics. Oh, maybe. Using... By the way, that's that's sort of debated. Don't. Too, what anyway. are you talking about? John Dillinger's debated. The guy killed him, and then the one person that killed him uh, made up the story about wiping the blood or something of that on some. And then Hoover fires that guy and makes his life fucking miserable, and so the guy commits suicide and kills himself. Right. But open and shut. But how is that? How is why? Why did you say maybe? You started shrugging your shoulders like John Dillinger's alive. I'm simply saying is that I don't think it's never there. I, there are definitely question marks about how Dillinger got it at the end. Basically, if, if Hoover lost him, that would have been the end of his career. So they had to execute somebody and then say it was him after the fact. God damn. That's what I mean about, you know, in other words, there, you can see in the Dillinger scenario enough of a motive for Hoover to have attempted something like that. It may have been Dillinger, okay? But it I'm merely Dillinger. saying is that if it, if it wasn't Dillinger, if they had lost Dillinger, then they really would have had to find a replacement. It's um. I want to ask you about the, why is there such an obsession with politics about getting famous people like surrounded by you or something like Elvis Presley with Nixon or anything like that? Or you talk about Joe Kennedy, not Joe Kennedy, uh, JFK with Frank Sinatra. You could talk about any super massive, even the stuff that goes on now with the Epstein stuff. Whether they're they're highly influenced or they just have a lot of power, but there's these weird associations with political figures and some kind of either deep-seated names or just influential names, like they have to be around famous people or something. Uh, much of it has to do, apart from publicity. Vanity? Obviously, and vanity, ego. Much of it has to do with sex and sexual politics. And uh, something I learned from Peter Dale Scott 
and again, this gets us back to circumstantial evidence and hearsay, but there is a ton of it, uh, is that the great unwritten history of politics and parapolitics in Washington, D.C. is that the entire city is crisscrossed by a series of uh, sexual blackmail rings. And there is almost no doubt in my mind, and I'm, I'm a total agnostic as to whether or not it was murder or suicide in his jail cell. Um, Epstein was running a sexual blackmail operation with minors, which was like the worst type of sexual blackmail operation. Because if you are caught with a pedophile, then you're doubly uh, you're caught as a pedophile with an underage partner, uh, then you are doubly dead, and you will do anything to avoid a criminal charge on those grounds. Because you, for one thing, you're probably not going to survive prison, just like Epstein didn't. Do you think Epstein was just this figure that was doing some bad stuff, or do you think he was CIA or what they're saying about him? It, the operation, as far as we know it, and I only really know what's in the public domain, is that he seemed to have had extensive financial files and, in, and uh, inroads into an awful lot of uh, corporations, trusts, funds, and uh, private assets and holdings. Um, it was an amazingly complex operation. Do you think that's that's kind of the sway that some of these politicians? Because a lot of these politicians are people too. Nixon and all of them are people too. They I mean, Jay, oh Nixon. I, I, I say one thing about Nixon. Nixon's the one guy who probably slipped through the sexual the sexual blackmail <laughs> network. Because because uh, how everybody uh, fucked him. Well, I, I somebody did, but uh, I don't think that he was really motivated in that way. He, have you ever read, uh, you know, his he, sort of like studies about studies, six studies and six crises, six crises. I always have problems saying that word. Well, anyway, what he, he describes solving a crisis kind of like ejaculating. I mean, he makes it sound like a, a sexual exercise, like heat and sweat and passion and determination and intent and intensity and and effort and effort and try again and try again and try again. You know, it's like, yeah, I know what you're describing. And what you've done is you've turned it in, into into a political allegory for your, your sexual fantasies, Dick. I mean, that's what you've done. So yeah, so I, but he got he got his he got his rocks off that way, being being politically savvy. Uh, Kennedy, Kennedy's, of course, I mean, the Kennedys are completely different, right? One of the great things about American history is the complete antithesis of those two guys, because uh, Kennedy, of course, the presidency was a joke. I mean, it was it's just something his dad bought him. Uh, the real important thing was getting his hands on Marilyn Monroe. Uh, that's what that's what really mattered. And that's where Frank Sinatra came in. I mean, yeah, Sinatra campaigned for him. Martin campaigned for him. Dean Martin couldn't stand this the SOB JFK. Uh, but, you know, and then, and of course, you know, uh, Sammy Davis Jr. And of course, the really, really, really big gun in the whole thing, of course, is Joey Bishop. <laughs> That's a joke. Sorry. OK, so anyway, uh, you know, and uh, the Rat Pack and all that stuff, it was it was it was basically a front for for orgies. Where can I ask where you would get that evidence from just besides those associations? Uh Every decent biography of Frank Sinatra will have, and also the best book ever written uh, about this, the Rat Pack and this aspect of American popular culture and history, of course, is Dino by Nick Toshis. 
And if you're going to read one book that's political in, in a popular cultural sense, read that book because he does a great job running down the back, right back. Is this how politics have always ran, though? Like this has just been so. It's like you read Thucydides. You uh, not Herodotus so much, but Herodotus was a mythologist. But you read Thucydides and you read Xenophon between the lines, and then you get in the Roman historians like Suetonius and and um, Tacitus, and some of the later ones of like <laughs> Manius Marcellus. Uh, all they're doing is talking about. Sexual degeneration is a symptom of psychic decay and social decomposition. Have you learned more from doing your parapolitical research, more about how things actually run? I mean, it's not easily explainable to people that are still in the public realm of things. I really think what parapolitics is – at the end of the day, I believe in it, some of it. I just don't oh, know. Oh, sure. About no, how no, no. no. But I mean, if we're talking about it more or less as a field, I mean, it's not really a field. It's, it's like, again, it's like a bunch of guys who sort of think approximately the same way. Cryptozoology. Doing, working on a pro yeah, working on approximately the same sort of stuff, like a mythology. But you're basing it off human intentions of that, not just a political position can get you isolated away from the downfalls of political humanity, which is the fact of scandals vanity greed sex lost all these things that come out in a person are eventually going to boil out into one of these uptight like do you hear all well, i thought this, this shit about the hunter biden stuff everyone's like how dare you make fun of an addict and biden should stand by his son i'm like he had a gun to a stripper's head while he was snorting cocaine i was like that's doesn't matter if he's an addict or not it's that's nuts don't fucking do that i think that <laughs> the, the less I'll, I'll let you know that's your rant i'll let that stand i i think that the the lesson of parapol what it's really all about is trying to come up with a way either empirical like mapping like peter dale scott does very well most of the time uh or theory which i do a little bit more of and guys like robert cribb or olanda tunander do more of is it's about the role of networks in political decision-making, and especially the way that political decision-making overlaps with national intelligence operations and or organized crime. That is really what it's about. And therefore, the thing about the parapolitical, which, which is why you kind of like biographies and you sort of like inside exposés that Suetonius keeps on promising us. You know, you read the 12, you read the 12 Caesars to find out just what everybody was doing in their bedroom more than anything else, right? I mean, Caligula and Nero, I mean, who can who can resist that, right? So that's what you really want to find out about. And what it teaches you is how much these personal connections double as political connections. I mean, how many, how many rulers, uh, tyrants, dictators, or even just absolute monarchs like Louis XIV, how many of them ruled through their mistresses and were ruled by their mistresses? It's a good point. It's an old mafia tactic. I forgot who the Don was that used to do it, but he used to have people – he used to have his wife greet people when they would come up to the door because his wife had this ability to just be able to be like, come on. Oh, hey, come inside. Let me cook you some dinner. Let me cook you this. And the next thing you know, by the time they got to him, it doesn't matter if there was a huge conflict going on. They'd be all kind of unangered. They'd be ready yeah, they, to yeah, have they'd be Yeah, they'd be mollified and appeased. Yeah, absolutely. Those are the things you kind of have to understand. I mean, they're not long-term structural stuff, right? I mean, it's not like, you know, something like, say, 
the Council of Foreign Relations as the regulatory body, or at least the point of interface among the regulators of the Anglo-American post-empire sort of thing, you know, uh, that's long-term stuff. But the, you have to you see every time you break down an historical event or phenomena, you have to separate between the short-term, immediate, and then the long-term structural, right? And a, a completely comprehensive approach has to be inclusive. It has to involve both elements. I mean, Hitler apparently was prevacating until the very last minute about whether to invade Russia or not. And I think basically guys like Goebbels and Himmler who really wanted to do it just did a better job massaging his ego the, the night before or the day before. How much until, and, and tilted it that way? How much do you think about when we talk about like major figures in history? We can talk about like in the beginning we mentioned about Howard Hughes. How much of it was media inflation compared to how much it was his actual character? But how much in horrible atrocities that have been done, figures that we remember like Adolf Hitler? How much do you think was manipulated into him by an outside force or an opposing force? We can use this example on a simpler one too, Jim Jones. I mean, when when I was doing a clip with you about Jim Jones, you mentioned that he did a lot of good things. The People's Temple did. Um, oh yeah, well, the People's Temple was was a social ju grassroots social justice movement in in San Francisco. So he, he, it's not like he, he doesn't do that. The thing is, is that the temple doubles or triples as other things at the same time. It's like dual dual purpose or dual function. And that's also one of the ways people get confused, because if you attack the temple, then you're being a reactionary. And if you defend the temple, then you're being a dupe. And both may be correct, because you're dealing with the same thing on two different levels. The political and the parapolitical, the, the licit and the illicit, the legal and the illegal. It's it, it, it again. These are these are not, we're so too binary or dualistic in our logic. The, these things are not mute. These are. Very few things are necessarily mutually exclusive. Certain things may not be proven, right? We, we, you know, we something may be dual function, and we don't really know it, or we can't say with certainty because the evidence, circumstantial or otherwise, is simply not there. But but any complex operation of any kind can be become a can become a dual function thing. Uh, it's just the nature of the beast, and the nature of the beast is that the public realm. Is not the entirety of the political realm. Once you disassociate the two, that, that the public realm is not exhaustive of the political realm, then you have a non-public political realm. And a non-public political realm, what's the difference between a non, which is, a, which is an awkward word, non-clumsy word, non-public political realm with a private political realm? And if you've got a private political realm, what can you exclude from that? What do you know in advance cannot happen? That couldn't happen. Not possible. A priori reasoning, axiomatic approaches, right? Oh, that can happen. How do you know if it's private? No, I, I agree with that a lot. It's just it, it, I don't know how far that goes, which is the thing, because then you leave the wall open for any type of skepticism about anything from sexual scandals to Bohemian Grove to – Right, and I think the only that's right, and that's one of the, that's one of the downsides. That's that's one of the methodological or philosophical intellect. I'd not say philosophical intellectual risks of it, and then you just, you just got to sort it out for yourself on a case by case basis. I mean, there, there's no answer.
it, it but it, it it really is hyper in some ways it's hyper empirical you just got to do it one at a time so how do you ever one get... scandal at a time one crime at a time how do you ever get reasoning and agreement across all boards, even with people that are still in the public realm? If you want to talk about certain things, like even Bohemian Grove, I had an academic on here talk about it, but he was very even keel about it. Never really got into the super super what some people who might deep dive a little bit deeper into it um, would talk about. I just asked him, I was like, "Don't you think it's weird that a bunch of people are sitting in front of an owl statue having like lunch and dinner?" He's like, "Yeah, but they're just talking about policy." I was like. I don't give a shit what you're, what you're talking about, but you could do that at a, at a hotel or a four-star motel or something like that. You don't need to be doing it in front of an owl statue. He's like, but what's weird about that? I, I'll put it this way um, and kind of you know, cut to the chase, I guess, as my summing up. Uh, do you know the phrase arcane imperi? No. It's Latin. And basically it – well – if you tr there's a literal translation which sounds dumb, which is basically the empire of the arcane or the arcane empire. But what it really means is secret knowledge necessary for governance. Not so much government, which is the public, but governance, which is the private politician's exercise of personal power. within the system of government. And arcane imperi goes all the way back. Uh, there's some debate as to who actually formulated Dante mentions it. Marsilius of Padua mentions it. Uh, you could see it in Cicero. You could see it in Seneca, right back to the, the early imperial Romans or the late Republican Romans. And even Thucydides and Pericles suggested. Um, and Arcane imperi is this well the the notion or the theory of arcane imperi, which was like a huge deal in the Renaissance, the English Renaissance, Shakespeare, some of Shakespeare's history plays or Roman plays seem to be about the subject of arcane imperi, right? Is that there's this like playbook. There, there's this textbook, uh literal or metaphor out there. Uh, like Machiavelli did, was trying to like imitate when he wrote The Prince, right? About how to govern. And philosophers of politics like Carl Schmitt or Eric Vogelin, very seriously, Heidegger too somewhat, and I think persuasively argued that there is, at least within Western European uh, cultures, like the Italian, the Spanish, the French, the Vatican, the papacy, um, the English aristocracy, the Elizabethan nobility, there is an agreed upon but off the books notion of rules and regulations and rites and rituals and procedures, pardon me, that are to be engaged in as a way of maintaining a secret or occult body of relationships and networks. Uh, and then during the 18th century, you get the Illuminati in Bavaria, you get the rise of the Freemasons, the Rosicrucians, all that stuff. And forget all the hocus pocus and all the, the paranormal bullshit, because it is hocus pocus paranormal bullshit. These are politically important things in the sense that apart from being networks and backdoor backroom connections and back channels between various political actors, the notion of arcane imperi 
is that this these these off the book rituals and procedures will be symbolically represented in an occult form like the bohemian grove type of thing the creepy thing about bohemian grove and it kind of reminds me of like a uh, creepy pasta episode right the creepy the, <laughs> the bohemian grove thing suggests a kind of a druidic neo-pagan ritual doesn't it i mean when you really look at it right and think about it and uh, I'll give you several, uh, one classic, great historical example of this, which of course Carl Jung unfortunately got completely backwards. I kind of, I got like a hate love relationship with Carl Jung. I kind of like him and I don't like him. But one, when he really dropped the ball was when he developed his Jungian psychoanalytic theory of alchemy, right? It's all about spiritual transformation and uh, transforming the animus into the spiritus and uh the world soul and uh, all that union archetypal individuation stuff. And we now think that most alchemical texts are actually code books for espionage operations. And that the great alchemist of all time, John Dee, uh, you know, the guy who allegedly created a golem and a homunculus and was working out in the out in the alchemist alley in Prague, which is actually a great place. I was at an alchemist alley, alchemist street. It's a fantastic place right next to the castle. Uh, and they kept it in really good condition. So I, I, I was really chuffed when I finally managed to make it to, to alchemy street um, or the street of alchemists. Um, so much of these things of arcane imperii are both concerned with political governance and with espionage and clandestine operations, which are mediated through occult imagery and symbolism and ritualism. I'll leave it at that. There's one thing I did want to ask you about. I just remembered the hate Ashbury clinic. Yeah. We got to talk about your writing on the hate Ashbury. Well, I've got, I've got about a five page micro dense footnote on that. <laughs> in my in my Howard's fuckpad book, uh, my Elroy book, yeah, no, uh, there's no doubt that Charles was plugged into a CIA operation concerning the administration and the examination of the effects of LSD in Hay Ashbury, and that's how he got his supply. And that's that was really the key to building his following. Was he was he was simply a great source to get the asset from, and it was coming from somewhere. I mean, he wasn't he wasn't making it himself. Well, he preyed upon like runaways and kids that just wanted to have like sex and try drugs. Yeah, well, I mean, that's you know hasn't changed anything. Uh, but that that's that's where that that's where his, his pull came from. He came from the LSD, and that he was getting from uh, the the CIA operative who was running the clinic, whose name eludes me at the moment. I cannot remember. I haven't got I haven't got Joel my, West. Uh, that's exactly right. Yeah, Doctor West was a CIA guy to the core, and he was uh, Charlie's supplier. You like when you look at like um Peter Dale Scott's work about drug trafficking and stuff that the government has been doing. Do you look at the example of the Haight Ashbury Clinic being a perfect place to try out MK Ultra because of the fact that there was such an infestation with drugs? Yes, uh, absolutely. And how and Peter, um, I'm you have to check with Peter because I'm sort of like talking off the the cuff here. Peter's theory, of course, is that the CIA had something to do with the Manson murders because, one, it was an experiment in thought control or mind control. And two, they wanted to discredit the uh, peace movement by manufacturing demon hippies from hell. 
I mean, you know, if it was the worst possible thing of every, you know, bourgeois, middle-class, white American's nightmare about what their kids can turn into, they just threw it back at them. I said, here it is. This is, this is what it's all about, right? This is, this is the truth of the long hairs. Charlie Manson is where it all ended up. Yeah, he did kill the uh, hippie movement, even though he was he was he wasn't there for the murders and he wasn't a hippie, but somehow he got associated with it. He actually, uh, you know, he we, the, the relate well. It's the commune living that that ended up the farm and everything is really what got him attached. The evidence that I've looked at, and by the way, Bugliosi's book is terrible. I mean, it's a well, he created Helter Skelter. There's no evidence for that. Well, no, no, no. I mean, it's, it's a really, really bad book. So I've looked at other things going well beyond Bugliosi, thank God, including the family, which is a very, very good book. Um, and it, it's it, Charlie's connection to the homicides is awful thin. To get a conviction on what he was charged with, I would say at the most accessory before or after the fact, which is a serious charge. But I really do not find the direct personal responsibility and intent to make out a proper homicide charge there. I just don't see it. Yeah, I can I'm be wrong. I but mean, I don't see it. I interviewed Brad Schweiber, who interviewed the LAPD um, about some of the files that none of them really want to go public about. He wrote a book called Reverend's End about the Patty Hearst kidnapping. Oh, yeah. Um, I've, I've not read it. I've heard of it. But uh, he, when he interviewed these guys, he, you could have got Charles Manson on anything, drug charges, prostitution charges. A lot of people don't know that his ranch was raided in April, and they were got him on some stolen car parts. But there had been murders that had been occurring before that that they thought that Manson was involved in, and they never did anything Possibly. about it. Po Span Ranch may have been a body dump site. That's for sure. So I mean, but again, I don't, that, I don't but, that, but that doesn't prove, prove Charlie's direct participation because he was linked to the Hell's Angels, and the Hell's Angels really did take care of people seriously, and they would have needed a dump site. See that that's the thing Bugliosi skates over, and I think that's even more important than than, than Peter's mind, uh, MK Ultra theory. I think it's it's Charlie's connection with the biker gangs in Hollywood and uh, the, the narcotics scene. I I personally think that the Tate and Bianca murders, maybe not the Bianca so much, that just may have been like a, a bad loan debt problem, but certainly the Tate murders up in the Polanski's place um, really strike me as a gust up satanic ritual killing which covered up uh, a drug-related problem. I, I think I think I think it was narcotics-related. Personally, made to look like this this uh, hippie from hell, uh, bacchanalia. There's a couple people that share that uh, sentiment. A lot of I think the official stories that just because Charlie was such a racist and the Tate Bianca and them were having a party with known Hollywood connections of African-American people and stuff like that. That's why Charlie did it. But Bugilosi's model of Helter Skelter is there's no evidence for it. You know, these witnesses, these family members didn't come out and talk about Helter Skelter and Charlie talking about it until after those court cases started being preceded. There was no discussion about it before. And then when they made the movie Helter Skelter, they had a door painted with the words Helter Skelter on it. And everyone thinks that's real. And it's not real. That was from a movie. It's not from the actual home. And uh, did you read Parkland? I didn't read. Is that a uh, Jim DiGino's book? No, that's uh, Bugliosi's uh, 
solution of the JFK killing. The Warren report's correct. Yeah, that that's that's case closed. No, Bugliosi. I thought yeah. I thought Bugliosi wrote Parkland. No, it's his tomb that he wrote on the JFK assassination, talking about how all conspiracies are garbage and there's no. Conspiracy oh, that's true too. But I think the Parkland book is by Bugliosi, is it not? It might be his uh, his as well. Yeah, I think so. I think so. I mean, again, like I haven't got it up right in front of me, but yeah, I think so. It is. What about Parkland? Any, anyway, that's a serious whitewash. Oh. Well, I'm even sure. if you don't, even if you don't believe the the all, <laughs> all the alternative conspiracies, the Warren Commission has a lot objectively wrong with it. So, I mean, yeah, but if you look at the scandals of Bugulus, you got to look at the scandals in that trial, of Charles Manson too. They put a prosecutor on the defendant's team to sabotage the court case. Yep, yep. That's not right, but I mean, I guess they looked at Charles Manson as he needs to go away, and this is what we need to make sure he goes away for a long time. Yeah, well, I mean, Charlie at that point may have been facing either you go along with this and we'll give you life without parole or we'll execute you now. Well, the government can fix people like Manson. Do you think he was unfixable? Not sure. We have I lobotomies don't... for this specific reason. Well, yeah. I hate to be that guy that mentions that, but whenever someone goes, Charlie Manson was unfixable, I go, oh, no, no, no. They can fix him, but it's what you deem as an ethical line of someone having a life afterwards. Well, you ever you read The Dark Knight by Frank Miller, right? The, no. the, the one that just changed bat, the Batman mythos forever. Um, one, it's four volumes, and volume three is Batman really has to get rid of the Joker problem once and for all, right? I guess I'm this is where I'm going to have to stop it. But I mean, this is my last thing for the day. He, uh, Batman's, you know, he's he's you know he's doing the cape thing and he's zooming in down the Joker, who's like massacring hundreds of people over this the state fair play park, right? The amusement park. And um, he says, Joker, the very first time I met you, I knew there was nothing wrong with you that I couldn't fix with my own two bare hands. And he snapped his neck? Yep. Uh, sort of. The Joker actually winds up snapping his own neck, but that's a different story. What a legend. Yeah. I'm the only person that could take <laughs> me out. No, I, mean, I think yeah, I we I think Keith Ledger could have done it. I don't know about Yoakland so much, but but uh, Heath Keith, pardon me, Heath. Yeah, he could have done that. The real secret is the real Joker's Yoko Ono. Yeah, I think to so. sabotage John Lennon's music career. Yeah, I'll never well, just forget. Like, just, just like just like I'll tell you this, I got an even better one. The true Catwoman of the nineteen sixties is not Julie Newmar, Eartha Kitt, or. Well, the third lady, the really nice, the, the, actually the nice Catwoman. Uh, Anne Hathaway? No. no Halle Berry? No, 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 back in the 60s. Um, anyway, it was Judy not Dench? them. No. <laughs> no, it, it was Margaret not Margaret Thatcher? Them. Nope. It was Tura Satana. Oh. Faster, faster Pussycat, Kill Kill. I would have liked Look it, it up. better if that, it was Margaret that Thatcher. Was the, that was the real Catwoman. Margaret Thatcher could easily play Catwoman. Well, she did, but uh, uh, milk has gone sour. Uh, <laughs> Eric, thank you again for giving me the time. Um, is there a place where people can find your links, man? Uh, really haven't got links. You just have to look me up. Punctum Books is probably where the next thing's coming out because uh, I got actually two in press at the moment. But Punctum, the one by uh, View from Howard's Fuckpad, uh, the Deep State, Bad White Men, and the Weird Noir of James Elroy is what you want to read if you're if you're listening to this podcast. And uh, you can look me up at Punctum Books. 
because I don't really go online much because I I'm not sure what I would be reading every day when I check my email. So yeah, you have to contact me through sources. If somebody wants to talk to me, they can contact you, Robbie, and uh, they may forward a message to me, and I'll try to reply. Okay. How's that? That sounds good. Thanks for putting that on me. Um, <laughs> thank you, everybody, for listening to this episode of Out of the Blank Podcast. Stay tuned for next episode.